Welcome to High Country, Politics in the American West. My name is Sean Diller. Regular listeners might know me from Heartland Pods Talking Politics every Monday. Support this show and all the work in the Heartland Pod universe by going to heartlandpod.com and clicking the link for Patreon. Or go to patreon.com slash heartlandpod to sign up. Membership starts at $1 a month. No matter the level you choose, your membership helps us create these independent shows as we work together to change the conversation. All right, let's get into it. Governor Polis's State of the State. In yesterday's annual State of the State speech to lawmakers, Colorado Governor Jared Polis laid out his vision to tackle the state's sky-high housing prices, including proposals to roll back building regulations, open public land to affordable housing development, and support innovations such as pre-built units. Polis, a Democrat re-elected in November, also touched on efforts to combat climate change, as well as lower the state income tax, measures to reduce crime, and expand education funding. Polis, the first openly gay governor in the United States, starts his second term after a shooting at a Colorado Springs gay nightclub in November left five dead and has renewed calls by Democrats to enact stricter gun regulations. Looking down from the gallery during Polis' speech were Richard Fierro and Thomas James, two patrons who tackled the shooter inside the club. As Polis read the names of those killed, asked for a moment of silence, and nodded towards concerns around spiraling hate speech. Polis addressed gun violence but largely skirted Democratic proposals that included raising the minimum age to buy guns and potentially banning assault weapons. Polis told reporters after his address, We're happy to discuss other ideas about how we can improve gun safety in Colorado and honor our Second Amendment rights. Polis lauded government intervention on housing, citing a ballot measure that Coloradans passed in November that dedicates an estimated $300 million annually to affordable housing. Governor Polis said he also plans to aggressively free up parcels of state-owned land to build low-income units. Polis gave his speech after securing almost 60% of the vote in a state where independent voters are one-third of the electorate. Polis's appeal has stirred rumors of a future presidential run. Our state might be shaped like a square, but the political pundits can't put us in a box, Polis said. We're a state that just this year voted to once again cut income taxes while legalizing magic mushrooms. And Colorado legislators introduce first bills. Soon after the Colorado General Assembly convened for the 2023 legislative session on Monday, members introduced the first bills of the year, offering a hint of Democratic priorities. Democrats enjoy large majorities in both legislative chambers. House Speaker Julie McCluskey, a Democrat from Dillon, said this session will pass legislation to protect our water and air, invest in our schools, improve public safety, and make our state more affordable. Our first five bills are just the beginning, and we're excited to get to work building a Colorado where everyone can thrive. House Bill 1001 would expand the eligibility for financial assistance and loan forgiveness for educators to address the state's teacher shortage. House Bill 1002 would create an EpiPen affordability program for people who do not have health insurance. It would cap the cost of a two-pack of EpiPens, often used to treat severe allergic reactions, at $60. House Bill 1003 would form a mental health assessment program for Colorado youth in order to identify student mental health concerns and direct them to resources. It would be available in public schools for students in 6th through 12th grades. In the Senate, Senate Bill 1 would provide $13 million to the Public-Private Partnership Office to encourage affordable workforce housing on state-owned land. Senate Bill 2 would direct the state to seek federal authorization for Medicaid reimbursement for community health care services. Community health care workers serve as a liaison between providers and community members and can often have a personal experience with a health condition and a cultural background they share with the community they serve. Senate Bill 3 would create the Colorado Adult High School Program for adults to earn a high school diploma at no cost and enter the workforce. The program would include transportation support and child care. 
Senate Bill 4 would authorize schools to hire mental health professionals who are not licensed by the State Department of Education, but do hold a Colorado license for their profession. And Senate Bill 5 involves wildfire mitigation and forestry professionals. It would direct the Colorado State Forest Service to create educational materials on the industry and create a new forestry program at Colorado Mountain College, among other provisions. And every one of Colorado's 100 legislators are able to introduce bills. This week, we'll take a look into Representative Matthew Martinez's first bill, concerning awarding earned time off of a sentence to nonviolent offenders who complete an accredited higher education program. Under existing law, inmates in the custody of the Department of Corrections may have earned time deducted from their sentence for meeting certain statutory requirements. This bill would permit an inmate sentenced for a nonviolent felony offense to have earned time deducted from the inmate sentence for each accredited degree or other credential awarded by an accredited institution of higher education. Inmates earning degrees while incarcerated would earn one year of time off their sentence for receiving an associate's, bachelor's, or graduate degree, or six months off for receiving a certificate or other credential. I was able to catch up with Representative Martinez in, I think, his third day as a state legislator, and here's our conversation. First, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. No, I really appreciate it. Absolutely, absolutely. Happy to be here. Thanks. And here, you know, where are we right now? Paint a picture if you would. Sure. So we are uh, in my uh, new office over in the annex building uh, across the street from the Capitol. Um, so we're still getting set up. So it's a little messy, but, you know, I do apologize. But we're getting ready to uh, get down to business for the session. So. And I see one thing your office does have is a sweet leather chair with the seal, the state seal of Colorado behind you. So that seems pretty official. You know, I was so excited to talk about education from the Chalkbeat form. You know, you talked about the, the funding formula. You know, if you would, can you kind of walk through what you are looking at when it comes to the funding formula? Like, what is it? And, um, you know, what is this BS factor that seems to be taking money away from schools? And, what are some of the ideas for a better funding formula? Sure, great question. Um, you know, I think that this issue is is really near and dear to my heart um, as a uh, as an educator um, and seeing this um, how it affects our, uh, the district. Um, the district is a mostly rural area. You have um, some some urban areas in Pueblo, but you know, really that that that. This is a problem that, that faces the entire district as a whole. Uh, being able to get more funding for our school districts, being able to pay our instructors, our teachers um, better, um, so they can continue to do the good job that, that they do. Um, and I think, you know, really, it, it's just different in rural Colorado. That's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I was just reading an article about a school district in Missouri that they're getting electric buses. And the first quote from the school district was that their diesel fuel costs are tremendous, is what she said. <laughs> um, and that's just a different problem, you know, uh, that a lot of people might not think of with education. Um, so how are rural schools funded here in Colorado? And how how come it kind of shakes out differently, I guess, for rural schools sometimes? Do you understand kind of um, I don't understand how it works, <laughs> so um, I didn't know if you did. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think to my understanding, you know, you, you're, you're drawing off of a, a smaller population based for for the property taxes to being able to pay for 
um, the, the schools themselves. Um, so when you have less population, you have less people that are paying into it, you know, the schools are not getting uh, nearly as much funding. Obviously, that's one very small piece in the, in the funding formula. Um, but, you know, I think that that's also where, where you see the really big discrepancies between um, the Denver school districts, which, which are drawing off of a much larger population, uh, depending on where you're at in Denver, obviously, you know, if, if they're more affluent or not, um, they're going to have uh, more funding for that school district. Um, you know, I, I think retention is such a big deal um, in the rural areas and being able to, one, one, attraction, and then two, retention of, of those good teachers. Um, you know, we need to, we need to be able to give them the tools, uh, the resources necessary to be able to attract um, good teachers um, and then once they're in there being able to help keep them there because then that's overall going to lead to better uh, retention or student retention better outcomes um, and, and really a better quality product that we're going to get right okay and then what's been happening with um, housing and kind of how are teachers feeling about working down there um, what are they facing and kind of yeah what is that like a little more but, yeah. Well, I'll take one part of the district, uh, you know, and to point out for this story is that um, the San Luis Valley is, is very unique. And so a lot of the people that live there, myself included, um, have been their generations. So when you get someone that to wanting to come into the valley, it, it is a little bit of a, um, a culture shock for them. Uh, you know, we always have to tell people, at least, you know, from my day job or my old day job, um, if you want to go to a mall, you, you got to go over the mountain pass and it's two hours away, um, either direction. Right. Um, and, and we're really isolated. You know, the biggest store that we got is, is Walmart in Alamosa and, you know, to some, um, people that are in an urban area look at that as kind of a, a, a shock for them. So I, I think, you know, the people that want to live in, in, in these rural areas that they're picking and choosing to do so. Um, and, and again, we need to do a good job of being able to have the resources necessary and make it a, a, another attraction uh, so that they want to come there. So, you know, it sounds like you're from a place that a lot of folks think would vote Republican. Um, and maybe a lot of people do vote Republican, you know, so how close was your election and, you know, how, how did you win? Sure. Uh, so it, it was about a 12% margin. Um, so, uh, it's we, pretty good. yeah, we felt pretty good about that. Um, you know, I think really our, my strategy throughout the whole thing was getting out and just is talking to people one-on-one -on -one and really just trying to figure out, you know, what, what makes them tick? What are their issues? You know, and, and making sure that they feel heard um, on both ends of the aisle and saying, hey, look, I don't care if you're a Democrat or, or a Republican. Um, these issues need to be brought to the forefront. And that's and I'm somebody that can bring those up. Um, there's no issue too big or too small. I want to make sure that these are being addressed um, here and I want to be a good advocate. And, uh, you know, obviously, I think that that was uh, pretty successful uh, and, and um, the, the people in the district felt that I was the best uh, person for the job. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, you know, what do you think people think about the Republican Party where you were, where you were campaigning? Um, you know, did they feel neutral, positive, negative about the Republicans? What did you kind of feel like you saw? Um, I, I think that there... You know, I, I heard this time and again on, on the campaign trail that a lot of these very long tenured Republicans, you know, have been Republicans their whole life, have really wanted to see a, a move back to uh, what the Republican Party was. Um, and, you know, to really ha not having the extremism on, on either end and really being able to get to back to a point of civility 
um, for both parties um, and being able to really work together to have good governance is really something that, that stuck out to me when I was campaigning. Cool. Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, that speaks to the ability to win because, you know, we talk about kind of a lot of campaign nuts and bolts and, you know, something that's come up more than once is, you know, in a, in a place where it's hard to win for a Democrat or a progressive, you know, there's this thought that there are all these people who aren't voting at all, but they should be voting and they should be voting for Democrats. And so, you know, getting them involved is a, is the, is a path to better electoral outcomes and the, the swing voters that you can flip that we're going to vote for a Republican that you then bring to your side, that's worth more when it comes to, to winning. So I guess that was a terrible setup for this question, but how do you, how did you <laughs> weigh that choice of registering new voters who might be extra progressive, even younger, you know, people of color, um, and moderate, Republicans, how did you kind of make that decision and what did you, what did you look at? Um, you know, I, I think really, again, it was just taking, taking the stance of saying, look, DC politics are DC politics. We can do something about this and we can change the narrative here in Colorado and I'm the person to do that. Um, you know, and, and I said this multiple times during my campaign and it's, uh, it's something that I really truly feel near and near to my heart is that really working together is being able to identify issues that at first not that are nonpartisan in nature um, and being able to say, okay, can we find common ground in these areas? Yes. Okay. Now we can start branching that out and, and keep expanding that. And, and we're going to find that there are going to be more common issues than we have differences. Um, and so, you know, I really started off with like veterans issues, um, uh, the RWR project um, in the San Luis Valley, you know, is, is really, really big, um, trying to improve the economy. Those are all not really a Democrat or a Republican issue. Those are just issues that we face in rural Colorado, in Southern Colorado. Um, and, and I think that that was successful. And I think that, you know, a lot of people gravitated towards that kind of approach and saying, hey, you know, that's something that I can get a part of. And, you know, we, we may disagree on the approach on some of these things, but knowing that 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 that, that is something that I care about and they care about as well, I think uh, overall was successful. Cool. Okay, right. Um, and I'll, ask, I'll, I'll come back to the politics, but I did want to ask, you know, if you could set a little more context, you know, what are, what's the top concern of the people in, in your district? Um, if you were to just stop random people on the street and say, you know, what keeps you up at night? Um, what, what do you think you would, you would hear? Um, well, the district is very diverse, as, as, as you're probably aware. Um, so the San Luis Valley is a primarily um, agricultural-based um, community. Um, Pueblo is very industrial. Um, you have Gardner that, that's a mix of, mix of that. So Gar uh, Ledfino County is very unique just because the only the town of Gardner is in there um, now after redistricting. Gotcha. Um, so in the valley, I would say, you know, um, water um, is, a, is a huge, huge issue. Um, the RWR proposal, renewable water resources, wanting to come in, build a, a pipeline up to Douglas County and uh, take the water, I think is something that, that has been uh, very uh, on the minds of everybody just because water is the lifeblood. Um, it's a very... Um, limited resource in the San Luis Valley. And, you know, we, we've heard talks for years and years and years about the proverbial boogeyman coming in. They're going to take your water. Well, it's actually happening and they have money for it. Um, so they, they, you know, I just think, you know, preservation, self-preservation in that, in that sense, um, is really driving that. And again, making sure that water stays there. 
Um, in Pueblo, it, it's really about, you know, the, the, the economy and being able to make um, uh, the streets safer and, and really making sure that people are employed, uh, making sure that um, we are working to combat crime. Um, and then also, you know, one of the big, big issues that came up um, during the campaign was obviously um, the closing of the uh, Comanche power plant and making sure that, that that replacement is there, not only for jobs, but for um, energy <laughs> for, for, for the district. But then obviously the Everest steel plant um, also are uh, it was put up for sale at that point in time, but they, I think they ended up working on a deal. But that was also a, a big uh, factor in that as well, too, because that's people's livelihoods. That's their jobs. Yeah. So there's a there's a large steel plant in Pueblo, right, that is one of the main employers outside of the jail, I think is kind of my yeah. sense of it. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Here's another one. So we're here in session. You won. You lost last time. I said I'd come back to politics. Yeah. <laughs> What did you learn? What did you do after you lost? And I'm assuming you learned something because you won. I don't know. Maybe it was just an easier climate. <laughs> but would you say you learned anything from running the first time? Um, what I learned the first time was, um, you know, I guess campaign strategy and really put, putting more emphasis on the individual person um, it, it is, what, is what I learned uh, from the last campaign to this campaign. Um, and, and really, you know, being able to have those forums, being able to really talk to people one on one and, and again, finding out what makes them tick and being able to say, hey, this is, um, you know, this is what I want to do. And then finding that overlap. So there, were there any people who were really helpful to you? Um, and if you could talk about how and then also maybe if it's like just this kind of person um, that other candidates should look for um, to lean on to help, you know, you can't do it alone. And I think a lot of people, you know. They might say that, but they they still try to do it alone anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, who who really helped you? Uh, you know, well, first and foremost, um, uh, Arnold and Marguerite Salazar have always been uh, really big supporters of me. Um, so they actually had my first kickoff uh, event. Um, as, as everybody probably listening probably knows, I got in the game really really late this this uh, cycle. Uh, but, you know, Arnold and Marguerite had said, hey, you know, absolutely, we, we want to see you up there. Um, we want to help out. Um, so they did their first meet and greet. Um, I uh, you know, send my condolences, obviously, to the Salazar family for Marguerite's passing a couple months ago. Um, you know, and that's uh, having a pillar in the community um, between um, everything that she's done. You know, um, there, there's going to be a void, I think, left behind uh, since her passing. But, um, you know, I, I also with that... Um, uh, Leroy Salazar and uh, and his wife Michelle, um, they have always been been re really really big supporters of me. Um, for those that don't know, Leroy is the older brother uh, to uh, now Ambassador uh, Salazar um, and uh, former Congressman John Salazar um, out there, and so they're 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 they've been always very very helpful. Um, you know, I, I took a lot of um, individualized donations, so twenty dollars here, thirty dollars here. You know, because um, same thing. Like I know most people like myself don't have you know uh, four hundred extra dollars to be able to write a check. You know, um, uh, here here and there. And so that that that's what I really wanted to focus on is being able to say, hey, you know, we can do this. People like us can be able to get up here um, uh, w without having to break the budget or spend you know one point two million dollars on a campaign. I was going to ask about, this is my last question, um, it's about prison education and higher education. And um, so I was going to get, you know, ask kind of where, where are you coming from, you know, um, before making an impact in prison education, you know, kind of what led you to 
to that area. Um, and then, you know, what should legislators be thinking about when it comes to the opportunity to reduce recidivism and do better in, in our incarceration and de detention facilities? Sure. No, great question. So uh, this is my bread and butter. Um, so I started at Adams State uh, about nine and a half years ago. Um, I recent graduate. Um, I was working. I uh, got appointed into a very part time role uh, in a in the Veterans Center um, in a program that I helped um, build up uh, since it had been defunct. And I started getting a lot of letters from incarcerated veterans that were asking, "Hey, um, can we still use our GI Bill benefits? Is this something that we can do? You know, is this even uh, able to? And if we can, how do we apply?" And I honestly, I didn't know the answer at the time. And I did some research. I said, yeah, absolutely. They can use their benefits. And, you know, we, we, I helped set up, um, you know, an easy path for them to apply in a paper form, um, being able to get their benefits started and being able to uh, work with um, the Adam States um, at the time, extended studies program that delivered uh, correspondence courses out to incarcerated students. Um, so I did that for about four years. And then uh, the president at the time had said, hey, you know, we really want to revamp our uh, prison education program. Um, so how, do, you know, what does this look like? And ultimately it was decided that, that, that it would be its own standalone department at Adams State University. And um, they asked me, they said, hey, well, Matt, you've worked with a lot of incarcerated veterans. Is this something that you uh, would like to do? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And I started as an interim and, uh, you know, applied and ended up uh, becoming the full director. Um, but, you know, I did that for um, uh, since 2017, um, and it's been amazing. Uh, it's been one of the best experiences of my life, uh, being able to really help this population out and really get them connected to um, uh, education. And if you look at all the studies that have been done, um, it absolutely shows that if you get uh, the incarcerated population connected to education, it reduces recidivism, uh, they don't reoffend, they become productive members of society, they can get their lives back together once they've served their sentences. Um, so, you know, the fun fact that I love throwing out, and I used to love throwing this out when I was the director, uh, uh, if an incarcerated person earns a master's degree while incarcerated, the recidivism rate is 0%. Wow. Absolutely shows that you get them connected to education, it is absolutely beneficial. Wow. Yeah. And this is getting into the weeds, and I know we're kind of going long, but, um, you know, what sort of cooperation did you need from the corrections department and the different facilities? And what were some of those moments that, you know, you saw eyes light up, or what were you really able to make that bridge, you know, what helped you make that bridge? Because I could see educational institutions, there's there's inertia and I'm sure there's reservations, but in general, I would guess that they would be more supportive of the idea, but maybe the barriers, you know, if you could talk about, you know, how'd you, yeah, get it done. I think Colorado definitely differs that, than a lot of states. Um, there is a, a big emphasis to uh, improving education opportunities uh, for the incarcerated population. Um, that's something that I've had a great experience working with Colorado Department of Corrections um, in my tenure here. Um, so we've actually delivered both face-to-face -face courses inside, um, you know, for our territorial facility, Denver Women's, um, here from my program, uh, and then also correspondence courses as well, too. And um, I, I think they're very receptive and they want to see as many educational opportunities as they can uh, to be able to, to help out this population. So um, I, I would say an eye-opening experience for me uh, was actually not in Colorado. 
Um, but it was also a very good facility. It was actually the military, um, United States Disciplinary Barracks in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Um, I was working with the student, and that was actually my first graduation ceremony back in 2017. Worked with one of the students that was there, and uh, the student's uh, mother came up uh, absolutely bawling. Like at the Leavenworth Penitentiary, Correct. what you're talking about? Yes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the military, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And... Um, the, the student's mother came up and was bawling, gave me the biggest hug in the world and said, you took a chance on him when nobody else would. And um, he, he is going to be better off once he is released uh, because now he'll have his degree um, and he's set up. And I just want to thank you for that. And that's something that has always been um, stuck in my head. And, you know, any time that I um, think about this population or, you know, or really what I want to do to help them, um, that sticks in my head as, as a really uh, big, big, big moment for, for me. Well, thanks again so much. Really, really appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Support this show and all of the work in the Heartland Pod universe by going to heartlandpod.com and clicking the Patreon link to sign up. Membership starts at $1 per month and goes up from there with extra shows and special access at the higher levels. HeartlandPod.com, click the Patreon link, or just go to Patreon and search for The Heartland Pod. No matter the level you choose, your membership helps us create these independent shows as we work together to change the conversation. And now, back to the show. Colorado's free preschool application is now open. The parent application for Colorado's new free preschool program opened yesterday, a major milestone in the march toward the program's launch next summer. The program, funded in part by a voter-approved nicotine tax, will offer 10 to 15 hours per week of tuition-free preschool to four-year-olds statewide. Families who fill out the application by February 14th will find out what preschool their child matched with on March 10th. And you can find the application at UPK. Colorado.gov. State officials expect about 30,000 children to opt into the Universal Preschool Program in its first year. The application should take about 15 minutes and it's offered in English, Spanish, and Arabic. Families that earn up to 270% of the federal poverty limit, about $81,000 a year for a family of four, will need to upload documents that prove their income. Families will be asked to pick up to five preschools they'd like their child to attend and will be able to rank their choices. Options include school-based preschools, church-based preschools, preschool programs inside child care centers, and state-licensed home-based preschools. Children will be prioritized for a spot in a preschool if they're already enrolled there, if a sibling is enrolled there, or if a parent works there. Free preschool will start in Colorado in August or September of this year, depending on the specific preschool start date. Check out upk.colorado.gov, or you can also contact the state's help desk at 303-866-5223. Governor Hobbs wants a scholarship for dreamers. More than 3,000 undocumented students in Arizona could see their dreams of a college degree come true under a new scholarship proposed by Governor Katie Hobbs. Dubbed the Promise for Dreamers Scholarship Program, the $40 million investment is aimed at supporting undocumented students who've attended an Arizona high school for at least two years. Scholarships from the program help fund four years at one of the state's three public universities. The new scholarship program debuted in Hobbs' State of the State speech last week, where she billed it as an extension of Proposition 308, which allows Dreamers to pay in-state tuition and access state-funded financial help. Raina Montoya, who is part of the effort to pass Prop 308, said that even though it improves access to higher education, it doesn't resolve the inequality undocumented students face at the federal level. To fill out the FAFSA, which determines a student's eligibility for low-income loans and scholarships like the Pell Grant, citizenship is a requirement. If you're a low-income student, 
Typically, you have other supports, like the Pell Grant, Montoya said. If you're a dreamer and you're getting ready to graduate from high school, you're not eligible. Even paying in-state tuition is going to be a steep challenge if you're trying to pay for school completely out of your own pocket. Seeing the same heartache time after time, I get the chills to think that we can have different conversations with our students looking ahead. We don't have to tell them you're limited to these extremely difficult pathways if you want to obtain an education. Montoya is also hopeful that the scholarship will benefit the state's future by creating a more educated workforce and helping to mitigate labor shortages. Arizona is currently grappling with teacher vacancies and faces a projected nursing shortage. Potential future benefits are a significant argument in favor of the scholarship, said Tyler Montague, chairman of the Yes on 308 campaign. It's a big payback. Everybody that we get through college, as compared to just high school, makes 650000 to $1 million more over their lifetime. And they're putting that money back into the economy. And they pay, on average, $380,000 more over their lifetime in taxes, which is a massive financial return, he said, citing national studies. Also important to consider are the social returns that college grads provide, Montague added. People who earn a college degree are less likely to incur social costs and are more involved in their communities. Montague hopes that the Republican majority legislature gives the scholarship fund a fair shot and keeps in mind the support that voters gave Prop 308 as an indicator for the consensus around aiding undocumented youth in the state. While the underlying legislation of Proposition 308 found bipartisan support and was proposed by a Republican state senator, Governor Hobbs' initiative may face an uphill battle in a state house with a more conservative bent to it. Enacting it through legislative channels isn't her only option. She could resort to issuing an executive order or negotiate with the Arizona Board of Regents, which oversees the state's universities. And your unsolicited concert pick of the week, Billy Strings has three sold-out shows February 2nd, 3rd, and 4th at the First Bank Center in Broomfield. At just 30 years old, Billy Strings is one of the most celebrated bluegrass musicians in America. He's known as an electric performer, keeping the improvisational tradition of bluegrass alive while incorporating a diverse variety of other genres into his music. Tickets and tour info at billystrings.com. Well, that's it for me. From Denver, I'm Sean Diller. Original reporting for the stories in today's show come from Colorado Newsline, the Arizona Mirror, Chalkbeat Colorado, the Associated Press, and Denver's Westward. Thank you for listening. See you next time.